Welcome back, everyone, to episode two of the Oil Ground Up podcast. This is Tony Greer. We're presenting these podcasts on behalf of the Clear Commodity Network, where Trevor Hall and I are trying to understand what is happening behind the price action. Today, I'm going to have a conversation with my old lifelong friend, Dave Williams. I wanted to have a conversation with Dave because he's a high-level industry professional that came from the environmentalist side over to the exploration and production side of the U.S. energy markets. I think it's going to be a great conversation. Good day, everybody. This is Tony Greer with the Clear Commodities Oil Ground Up podcast. I'm here with a lifelong friend of mine named Dave Williams. Dave Williams is a high-level professional in the exploration and production industry who came over from the environmental side to the dark side of fossil fuel production. And uh, Dave and I are going to have a little bit of a conversation about what's topical in the energy markets today. How you doing, brother? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me, bro. Yeah, it's great to have you on here to do something professional. Dave and I go back. I've known him since I was two. And uh, quite always, since he was two, and quite honestly, it's been a, a treasure of a friendship my entire life. So it's really cool to get to do something professional like this. So, Dave, we are here on uh, March 2nd, 2023. The price of oil is $78.20 at last sale. I would say the backdrop of the market looks quite a bit like, you know, supply under attack quite a bit by the Biden administration and and, uh, not being friendly to drilling and having all kinds of environmental regulations um, and selling the SPR in order to keep the price down. And the other side of the coin, I guess we've probably got Saudi Arabia who wants the price to go higher and they're kind of OPEC is keeping markets fairly tight. We're sanctioning Russia, who seems to be doing just fine either way. And and over the last four to five months, the oil market really likes these prices around 7580. So I thought we could dig into what you're seeing in the exploration and production industry in 2023. What's on your mind? What's topical? Yeah. So, you know, at 78 bucks, I'll tell you, I'm I'm pretty happy. I'm pretty content with that. Um, you know, because as a professional, you can make a lot of money um, at 78 bucks. I mean, would I like it to be a hundred dollars barrel or 120? Sure. Um, you know, but strange things happen in the industry when you get to that, you know, that price point. You know, because when you get to a hundred to a hundred and twenty dollars a barrel, man, it almost anybody could make money, and you get mm-hmm. a lot of um, you know, silly people in the business that start, you know, getting their hands in there and making bad decisions. So, you know, the around 80 bucks a barrel is a good place to be, Um, you know, and I don't see it dropping lower. I mean, I know we have, um, you know, and this is me speaking as a professional. And as soon as I start pontificating on price, you know, I know we're in trouble. But, (laughs) You know, the the key thing is regardless of like what Biden's doing with the the SPR and and whatnot is there's going to be some fluctuations, but ultimately the demand for fossil fuels is going to be there. 
And, you know, there may be some rhetoric and some, you know, policies that are put in place that are going to cause, you know, local fluctuations. But, you know, as a whole, I think the commodity price is going to be, you know, pretty high and in a good spot for a while. And that's, you know, and that's me saying it from the inside. Yeah. So, who, you know, who's this directly benefiting? You know, it sounds like we're weeding out, um, you know, some of the weaker players that can show up at higher prices. And we're at a price where I guess you need a fairly efficient operation, um, you know, to be wildly profitable. As you say, the demand seems like mm-hmm. it's there. Who, who's benefiting the most under these conditions now? Is it refiners, oil services companies, exploration and production? Do you have an angle on that at all or, or, or any sense? I would, I would say all of the above. Um, you know, the price point, I think, benefits all, all sides of it. You know, it, I, I think it becomes more of a, an interesting conversation when we get down into like $40 per barrel range. Mm. Because, you know, that, you know, that starts weeding out some of the, the weaker players. And also it creates a huge shift in the dynamic of how much, you know, exploration is done in certain regions. Because, you know, Typically, I work in the offshore Gulf of Mexico, or at least it's where I am right now. Um, but, you know, other basins, whether they be onshore or unconventional resources, they have entirely different price points and different lifting costs. And it's like when you get into the neighborhood of $40 per barrel or below, it becomes uneconomic to actually start, you know, to actually drill for some of these resources. So, you know, that affects the supply chain and whatnot. But, you know, it at $80 a barrel, we're in a spot where, um, you know, I think all basins and all types of operators and regardless of the industry, whether it be the EMP or refining, I think there's, you know, there's good money to be made. Uh, um, and it's a good situation to be in. The difficult thing right now, which is unique, is kind of the renewable push um, from the administration because, you know, it's one thing to have a good price point. What gets tricky for us as operators is the capital markets are just not there or as plentiful as they have been at other times when prices have been high. Mm. Because, you know, the administration is kind of telling the banking side is like, you know, you shouldn't be putting your money into oil and gas. So you should be putting it into renewables. So it becomes tricky because, yeah, the price is right. But at the same time as the, the capital isn't quite there to to take advantage dave let me ask you a question what is the word what does the word renewables mean to me so i guess <laughs> renewables is technically what the administration or the biden administration likes to talk about is you know clean energy so you're talking about solar wind geothermal um stuff in that, that that's thing. interesting and i i still and i ask you that a little bit facetiously and um mostly because like i've never really understood what renewable has to do with it you know i mean if we're if you're i understand that a wind turbine is you know spinning constantly and we're going to use the electricity but i don't know what part of that is renewable or different from generating base load power by burning coal or natural gas Right. Well, it, you know, the term renewable comes because it's basically got an infinite supply. Like the wind is never going to stop blowing. Ah, okay. So, you know, we're, yeah. Whereas, you know, oil or coal, it's a finite resource that's being harvested. That's fair. Whether okay. you're drilling for it. Interesting. Yeah. That's, that's a good angle. But what's your, so, so on the EMP side, 
there's less capital available because of likely the message that the administration is sending. So what's the alternative? And that they, you know, the, the stocks are performing fairly well. You know, you're getting good news out of earnings from ExxonMobil and Schlumberger. And, you know, they're really just a big tea party, it sounds like right now with the price here. Um, yeah. Well, tell me what's going on under the hood there. Well, I mean, if you've got a lack of CapEx, you know, it's just you got to be smarter about how you deploy it. So and, you know, the companies that you're mentioning, you know, they've gotten to their size and they've been around as long as they have because they know how to do business. Um, you know, the majors are, are one aspect of the business, but, you know, a big part of the business is are independents, you know, and, you know, my company is a is a smaller independent EMP company. And, you know, we're filling the gaps that the majors can't can't fill. So, you know, when we talk about how Exxon is doing, that's one thing. But the demographic of some of the, the independent EMP companies is unique because we're we're very much dependent on, you know, the, the capital markets providing funds to, to let us do exploration. Got it. Got it. So now what, how, you know, how are you, how are these companies now, you know, what, what, what's the, okay, we, so we don't have as much capital available. What, how do we decide what we're going to do, right? Are, are we going to be drilling less for oil? Uh, how, how do we stay profitable? You know what I mean? Like, how do you keep, um, I'm, I'm trying to just understand that from a business perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, <laughs> You know, when there's less capital, I mean, obviously you're dialing back your your annual expenditures. But, you know, like I said, it's a general term, but just being smarter about it. But, you know, what what gets capital deployed into our space is, you know, returns. Um, so it becomes tricky where you really need to focus on projects that have cycle times that are returning cash to to these investors, you know, if you just speak about, you know, private equity investors, um, for instance, you know, they want to come in and, uh, you know, they want their investment to have make a five year timeline, maybe seven tops. So they're they're wanting a, a pretty quick return on their money. And sometimes, especially in the offshore world, you know, some of the deep water projects have some pretty long cycle time. So it becomes tricky for the operators to kind of optimize that so you know like there isn't no ma there isn't a magic recipe book it's just you know you just got to find operators that are managing their capex appropriately and then returning the dollars to the investors pockets in a timely manner got it so i'm you know i'm sensing you know i guess that the the larger companies have the economies of scale on their side at some level right they own massive resources they've got all the equipment they need to drill on you know that they own and everything what what are sort of the difference between the independent projects and the 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 huge enp company projects is that easy to delineate dave or am i asking a dumb question yeah. which is possible Dude, no questions are dumb, but, uh, but you know, it's just there, I mean, you, you, you pointed it out, the economy of scale, um, just makes the majors in a, it puts them in a situation that they don't have to rush, you know, they could do it on their own timeline because, you know, when you have an Exxon Mobil, who's a multinational, you know, multi, multi basin major oil company, the biggest one in the world, I believe, um, you know, they can do things on their own timeline. Now, do they want to drag their feet? Hell no. But, um, you know, the smaller independents, you know, the, the clock is ticking from, from day one. 
you know, so uh, we try to do things as efficiently and expeditiously as possible and obviously as safe as possible, um, you know, because the oil industry clearly has, you know, a target on its back with some uh, some incidents that have happened over the, the last century. So, you know, it's a, it, it's a unique business and I wouldn't have it any other way. I love it like nothing else. It's, you know, so you guys are just really like um, expert executors um, on, on certain resources. Is, is that fair to say? Like, why, why does the independent company, um, you know, it sounds like you're on a very specific timeline and, and very much on an investment return timeline. And mm-hmm. what, what are the differences in the projects themselves? Is there any major differences there like that are easily describable? Um, size for, for sure. You know, the big boys need to drill big problems, big projects to, uh, you know, cover their GNA costs and, you know, and just their general operating costs. You know, when you've got a smaller independent, I mean, so like the, the company that I was previously a part of, you know, including our offshore personnel, and our office people, you know, we were 150 ish people and half of that were people at our offshore facilities and, and platforms. Wow. So, I mean, we're pretty small and nimble. Um, you know, you try to get the best of the best and you run lean as possible. But, um, you know, the, the majors tend to have, uh, you know, a lot of staff, you know, and they, they take their time, you know, you know, measure, measure twice, cut once, so to speak. Mm. But, you know, as an independent, you really aren't afforded that time and the capital to measure twice. So you got to do it once and you got to do it right. Um, and, you know, and it's proven quite beneficial because we've had a lot of successful independent companies and you know the majors are trying to learn from us uh i could you know point to an example where we've you know had you know majors looking over our shoulder to understand how we can operate at such an efficient level um so you know we're 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 teaching each other and we play in the same space so we're certainly not enemies you know we got to wash each other's hands that's really, really interesting. I would have, I would have thought it was the other way, where the where the smaller operators were learning from the big ones. But I, I could see how it could be turned on its head a little bit. I'm, I'm going to ask yeah. you, Dave. Like, what um, when you say measure twice, cut once, <laughs> what what exactly for you know for for a trader that doesn't have his hands in a well, what what exactly are we talking about? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm just using a, a vague colloquialism. Yeah, no, but I mean, you're, you're behind yeah. it, there's something, right? There's behind it, there is, okay, we have to go into this project and make sure that, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like, is it just being on top of it tactically, tactfully, operationally, in terms of, you know, getting the oil out, safety, and that whole thing? Yeah, I mean, definitely, they've got a name to protect, uh, for sure. So, I mean, they're gonna, they're gonna take extra time and extra expenses to make sure that things are, um, you know, much more robust than they need to be. Um, and you know, and you know, not that I'm picking on, you know, BP, but you know, post the Macondo spill that happened, you know, BP and, and the rest of the oil industry has a target on their back. So, you know, uh, independents or majors alike, you know, neither of us can afford, you know, to have an accident, none of us want that. I mean, God, no, I mean, nobody wants that. But, you know, when you've got that type of exposure in a name like an Exxon or a BP or a Shell, you know, and I'm not picking on them, I'm just naming yeah, them as course. examples. 
But, um, you know, they're definitely going to take the extra time and expenditure that things are, you know, uh, gold plated, if you will. Yeah. Okay. What, what, um, what do you, what do you kind of sense in the future, Dave? I mean, if we continue on this path toward renewables, less investment in oil, in my opinion, it's like, we're not going to get to renewables without fossil fuels. You know, mm-hmm. do you, I know you're an EMP guy and, 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 you know, with the guy that's got your hands dirty, do you have a view on price from here or do you have, uh, are you kind of just happy that it's at a level where the projects are, or that you're working on are profitable and everything works? Yeah. I mean, like, like I said earlier, I'm pretty happy with where the price is, but I, I mean, would I like it higher? Of course. I mean, but, but one thing that we've seen as you look over the price curve over the last century is dude it's always moving i mean if it's not going up it's going down and you know we've been fairly stable at you know kind of the mid 70s for a couple weeks i don't see that lasting long because there's always something that happens geopolitically that starts shifting the price around yeah and i mean if you just look over the last decade you know um you know the the company that uh i've been with has been around for nine years, so roughly the better part of a decade. And when I got into that company, we were at a hundred dollars a barrel. And immediately when we started the company, we went down to forty. <laughs> you know, and then we bounced up into the sixties for a bit. And then you know, um, you know, in two thousand, what was it, two thousand twenty? We had a negative, <laughs> negative oil price right. in April twentieth. And then you know, we get up over a hundred again, and now we're at seventy. So you know, it's, it's dynamic. And, you know, the tricky thing in my business is to not overextend yourself when prices are high, because then you're going to get clipped when, when they drop, you know, and it's just doing smart business. Um, but all that being said, is, you know, to go back to your question about like what we see with the push on renewables is, you know, the problem with renewables at least in my mind is the technology right now is isn't a one-for-one trade-off so it's like yeah people want to get rid of oil and say oh yeah well we'll just do solar or wind well the problem is is you can't (laughs) you can't you can't do that and everybody keeps talking about battery technology and you know batteries have been improving um you know, over the years, but the problem is like batteries in like a, a Tesla car. And again, I'm not picking on Tesla. I love Teslas, but you know, batteries store power, they don't generate it. So yeah. you need to generate that power from somewhere. And, you know, and when we talk about, and you know, and when I have drinks with buddies and we talk about this, I, I end up quoting a lot of uh, these like stats, but you know, um, if you take the best batteries in the world that are made by Tesla, okay, that I think are in their Model 3 uh, or whatnot, you know, if you sit there and take, um, you know, how much they weigh and how much they cost to make is you would have to spend like $250,000 and you'd have 20,000 pounds of batteries to equate to the energy storage capacity of one barrel of oil. (laughs) One. That's that's seventeen hundred kilowatt hours. Oh my! So yeah, yeah, and and that calculation, I did that based on you know some metrics from like two thousand eighteen or nineteen. So you know if if some of your listeners go back and like start checking the math on it, you know it it might be a little bit different now. But that gross disparity is is there. Yeah, <laughs> and 
you know, how you bridge that technology gap, you know, that's the, that's the big question right now is you, so I, I see the administration pushing for, you know, renewables and, and clean, you know, whatever, but, you know, wanting it, you can't out policy physics. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like wanting it is one thing, but having the technology to truly replace it and to take almost like the better part of a century is oil and gas and coal infrastructure and just all of a sudden say like hey we're gonna we're gonna replace that it's just um it's it's nonsensical when people just say well we'll just move to this right well it's it's more complicated than that um but i've always been a believer that you know the free market should dictate um i think you know when we like in the history of man so as a geologist you know you know you look through history it's like you know you started making energy by burning wood you know and then it was like you know then you end up whale oil and then then coal so now we're still using coal and now we're drilling for oil and natural gas and you know there's gonna be a more efficient and cost-effective energy source that's going to be developed. I don't know what that is, but I think the market should dictate that as opposed to like having policies dictate that you should do this. Yeah. Um, yeah. The big, the big mismatch I feel like with the policy is that, you know, all of a sudden we are coming in, you know, as they're trying to push renewables, we've got to shut down the fossil fuel industry and take your gas stove. Yeah. And that, that yeah. that's the part to me that is kind of on its face shows that the ESG movement is really a lot about politics and money, you know, because oh, really? you've, you've clearly proven just with that one equation that it is not about energy efficiency. It is not about cheap energy. It is not about civilization. It is a money grab. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's crazy too, because it's, there's such a push on changes in like to electric cars. I mean, that, and that's that's hilarious to me. Um, uh, you know, it's just why that's the focus focal point. Like, you know, another thing that I like to talk about. You know, another one of the martini discussions that I have is like, you know, um, you know, right now I think there's like, uh, you know, when I did this calculation, there was like four million uh, electric cars, and then you know, people are talking about trying to get that number up a hundredfold. Uh, to in two decades. So, you know, two decades from now is we want 400 million electric cars on on the road. Well, so right now we have 4 million electric uh, in the world, but there's a billion automobiles today. And those those billion cars use about 30% of the world's oil. So there's a focus on cars, but they're only taking up a third of the, the oil demand. So, all right. So if we go ahead like two decades and we're in 2040, you know, we'll have 400 million electric vehicles, but it's estimated we're going to have 2 billion total automobiles. Okay. So, so that means is if you go from, if, if that billion to 2 billion increase happens in total, and we're able to achieve 4 million to 400 million electric cars in two decades, you're only going to reduce the world petroleum demand by 6%. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so there, there's, there's, in my mind, I think there's just, there's better battles to be had. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
you know, and I love Teslas. I think, you know, I think they're wicked great cars, but I think people should drive them because they, they like them as a vehicle, not because they think they're doing a better service to the planet. Because frankly, if you look at an electric car, the additional metal and the rare earth metal metals, like, you know, you should Google what a lithium mine looks like. Oh yeah. Um, that'll, that'll change everybody's view on how environmentally friendly electric cars. Are. Yeah. Well you had it, you know, that I, I thought that the, uh, the Joe Rogan episode with man, the guy's name escapes me. Uh, his last name is Kara, I think. Um, and, and the guy that literally was down in the lithium mines proving that, you know, the artisanal miners that they're using for batteries, that means little kids. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That means little barefoot kids running around in the mine, you know, exposed to all kinds of toxic substances. So the whole idea was that at the bottom of the supply chain of these, you know, of the, of the woke batteries are little children that are exposed to harmful chemicals. Yep. You know, yeah. and that, that's the real, that, that's the real, you know, a part that's not going to get discussed when you mention ESG. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, that's huge. And I, unfortunately, I didn't see that podcast. I love Joe Rogan. He always has some great guests, oh, I'll send uh, it. but I haven't. I'll send it. Yeah, it's I'd mandatory, love to see it. Mandatory listening. Yeah, yeah it's, it literally will change the way you look at all of your electronics. Like you feel somewhat responsible. And I think it's like one of those podcasts if you know, it keeps generating millions and millions of views that it will eventually affect the industry because it was really mm-hmm. eye opening. So, yeah. so, so, I mean, yeah, go. Yeah, ah, I was just kind of, you mentioned ESG a couple times. And, you know, that's been a big driver uh, on the the EMP side uh, of the business, you know, because like, like I said, with the last, you know, decade that I've been with my company, um, you know, we ended up writing our first ESG report, (laughs) corporate ESG document, you know, in the last year or two. So that was that was a new change. And, you know, while I appreciate the, the movement and, you know, what I also want to interject too is like, listen, my, my first degree is in environmental engineering <laughs> and then I have a ge- geology degree. So like I am a steward of this planet. So yeah. I know as I'm talking about oil and gas, you know, everybody's like, ah, you're just, you know, a big baddie. Like, you know, I'm, the planet i i study the planet yeah no 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 so, that's that's really important dave because the people on you know the the large majority of people that you talk to like nobody nobody thinks that it's nonsensical that yeah. you know human beings and large industry are definitely damaging mother nature right there's there's got to be no doubt about that at some level and you know people like you and i i mean i live on a beach and i get upset if i see a bottle cap on the ground you know what i mean like we're, yeah. we're of the same mindset that it's to be kept in pristine as pristine condition as possible um so it's really interesting that, you know, the people on the fossil fuel side of it are like, yeah, we get it and we're trying to go there and we understand the need for a better system. And the poli- the political side is like, yeah, no, we're shutting you down. We're, we're shutting yeah. you guys down. And that's why, you know, there's going to be just nothing but uh, – there's just, just going to be nothing but value being placed by politics where markets yeah. don't place value. And, that, and yeah. that's going to shake everything up, you know, economically and likely environmentally and, and all of that. But it's really interesting to see here that people on the fossil fuel side are very supportive of, you know, cl- you know, understanding climate change and the effects and things like that. And the other side of the equation is not. So it's just, mm-hmm. it's just interesting to point that out because I continue to see that theme where people do really care and they just saying like, OK, that's nice. But trying to get this done by 2030 doesn't work for physics. 
you know, and, yeah. and so it's like, you know, my man doing, like you said perfectly, like you can't um, out policy physics. And, you know, like my man Doomberg always says, it's physics versus platitudes. And in the end, phys- physics <laughs> like that. 100 times out of 100. So I, you know, as a trader, I try to get to that end point, you know, and think like, okay, what's, what, what are we eventually getting to? Are we getting to the point where we have more and more intermittent power that's used? Or are we getting to a point where, you know, and there's also a balance of fossil fuels, natural gas, coal, et cetera, et cetera. Or are we getting to a point where that all has to get phased out and we're relying only on intermittent power, which as you can see in South Africa right now, and as we saw last winter in Germany, does not look like it's sustainable. Mm-hmm. You know, so what, what, what is your, uh, what, what's your read on that? I mean, if we go all intermittent power, you know, I mean, have you seen what's going on in South Africa lately? I mean, their government isn't able to guarantee 24-7 power. Yeah, and so- I mean, between that, you know, the brownouts in California, and listen, I live in Houston, Texas, and we had a freeze a couple of years ago that took down, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the power grid. grid. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and there's there's a lot of reasons for that, and people like to blame it solely on you know the intermittent uh, pieces, which uh, I think are a large culprit, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. But um, yeah, it you know that right there should be a sign that here we are in 2023, we've got you know countries, you know developed countries that are having <laughs> having issues, uh, you know providing power. I mean, we've got an infrastructure set up right now to perform uh, to provide um, cheap, affordable energy. I mean, Alex Epstein, dude, he says that all the time, and I, you know, and I agree with him wholeheartedly. And it's like we're we're in a unique world where you can get you know a gallon of gas for less money than it costs to get a gallon of ice cream. <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, but what that gallon of gas translates into right. you know energy wise is phenomenal yeah um and you know and uh, you know, we talked about the environmental stuff earlier like being a steward of the planet you know but I'm, I'm also a steward of humanity and it's like we to support the, the seven billion people on the earth or what whatever the number is is that we need to expend energy to to support that cheap energy is civilization Yes, Th- that's where it exactly. parts, right? I mean, yeah. So I, it's just, I and I worry when you start uh, to your original point of injecting some of these renewables and the you know the intermittent technologies. I think Alex Epstein, to use him again, he calls them unreliable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, you know, if you start forcing those into a grid, um, you know just based on policy, you're going to run into problems because, you know, that intermittency is causes an issue. And when they're intermittent, they're usually backed up by coal fired power plants or natural gas. (laughs) You know, so it's, so, um, yeah, it's, I don't know. I just shake my head sometimes when I think about where things are being forced. I mean, like, you know, cycling back to, the ESG discussion and what a lot of oil companies are doing, the majors and independents, you know, they're starting to get into the, the, the CCS business, the carbon capture and sequestration mm-hmm. business. I mean, because, you know, CO2 has been, you know, maligned as the harbinger of doom for some yeah. reason. Never mind that it's a building block of life, you know, and an essential, you know, 
gas in this atmosphere, right. you know, for yeah. plants that create oxygen. But for some reason now it's become a pollutant. But, you know, now we've got companies for, because of ESG, they're spending tons of capital for, to figure out how to inject CO2 into the ground. Never mind that you're going to expend more CO2 than you're putting it's in the ground. That. Oh my God. But it, but it becomes a, just a platitude to, you know, to placate people who are like, well, we just need to get rid of CO2. So it's, you know, that's what I worry about is, you know, what, when oil companies are deploying capital towards that versus actually creating energy, you know, that's going to have an effect because, you know, there's no revenue stream for the CCS business. It's all tax breaks. Right. So, I mean, that's that's the motivation for it. And also, too, is, you know, a lot of companies, I think, do it because they want the visibility with the community and help their their stock price, you know, hoping that, you know, because we're environmentally conscious and we've got a CCS program, you know, we're going to get investors to come this way. But my view on it is like, well, if you've got someone who is, you know, way on the left and, um, you know, very environmentally conscious, they wouldn't be trading oil stocks anyway, much less, oh, wow, now this company's got a CCS division. I think I might invest. I, I just mm. I just don't see that happening. Um, yeah, that's yeah. really interesting, Dave. That reminds me of like, <laughs> that reminds me a little bit of like, you know, when you, you see the chart of drilled but uncompleted wells going way, way, way down, right? There are many mm -hmm. more drilled but uncompleted wells. And, you know, as a trader, you get nervous because you say, okay, well, what if there's a big rise in gasoline demand just, you know, generically over ye over a number of years, where are we going to go get the oil from? Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? If the, if, if the wells aren't being drilled and, and readily tappable, then, then how are we going to get the oil when we need energy? And I feel like it just sets us up yeah. for shortfalls left and right, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, but, you know, it's important. I think the investment community should understand the rationale on why, um, you know, wells are drilled and then not completed like that because, and it's primarily in the, uh, the onshore, uh, in the unconventionals. Okay. Oh, is that right? So where, more yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah. So the cost is like, so you've got a drilling cost and then you've got a completion cost. So in these unconventional wells that have like these, you know, 30 or 40,000 foot lateral distances, and the fracking that's done over that distance, the completion cost is the biggest price of that well. Now, now the production curves on unconventional wells, you know, their highest rate is when they come online and they've got a, you know, a hyperbolic decline. So, you know, they'll have their peak rate and it'll drop very quickly and then it becomes asymptotic at a fairly low level. So, you know, the money is made on that flush spike of production. So if you've got bad commodity prices, it doesn't pay to complete that well. So if you got the well drilled and then you get prices that get up to a meaningful level, then you can maximize your returns. I see. Very interesting. Uh, thank you for explaining that. Sure, sure. No, that's that's interesting. I wanted to, you know, I, what, I, what I love about this, Dave, is that, you know, we're and what I love about what Trevor and I are trying to do with clear commodities is that, you know, you're not getting coverage of this, of ESG this way in the mainstream media, right? Obviously they're on the governmental side and there's no way that they're going to have a guy on that's talking about child, you know, humanitarian crises in mm -hmm. lithium mines, right? You're just not going to yeah. get that side of the story. 
and you're not going to hear the side of the story about the you know the efficiency of one barrel of oil versus a 250 pound battery that eventually is going to you know be a piece of un un you know uh, what is it you can't get rid of that waste essentially right yeah. it's like permanent waste right. um, yeah. And, and I just want to clarify: the one barrel of oil is equivalent to twenty thousand pounds of batteries. Oh, excuse me, twenty thousand pounds. Right, Jesus Christ! Excuse yeah, me. that's all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I just jotted it down all too fast. So, yeah, you know that that's Don't the worry. stuff that doesn't get covered on Channel Seven News when they talk about you know how wonderful the ESG policies are and how woke they are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's that stuff all gets undressed pretty quickly. So I'm glad that. Um, I'm glad that you teased out quite a bit of that. Yeah. What um, I guess, Dave, if I wanted to, if I wanted to, like, sort of wrap it up, I would ask, you know, kind of, um, are there, is there any other? Are, what do you see in trend wise in the industry? I mean, obviously, we're going toward, you know, we're we're moving toward, uh, you know, I guess a different phase where the oil companies are can pivot, like you said, toward carbon capture and sequestration. I mean, what, what what would your sort of final thoughts be on the future of the E&P industry? If I could ask you, you know, something as basic as that or, or just to kind of close it up, you know, if you had to round it all up. And I'm not sure if that's a great question, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, you know, personally, I'm pretty bullish on it. And a lot of that is because I just realized the the demand is always there and it's ever increasing. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, and the technology gaps that we kind of alluded to. I mean, that's like a whole nother discussion we could dive into because of those technology gaps. Um, I think the dependency for fossil fuels is going to be here for at least the next coming decades. Like I don't see it ending like fossil fuels being kicked out in the next five years. Um, I think we're decades away from any sort of major replacement and when i say a major replacement i think it's still going to be a partial yeah. replacement so i'm pretty bullish on it um what i do worry is because of some of the political rhetoric that's out there is you know the the technical schools are not getting as much people in the petroleum studies you know to refill mm. you know personnel wise um you know, so I worry a little bit about that, but that, you know, that might just be me and I, it may be a nothing burger, if you will, but, um, no, but I think, that, yeah, that's fair insight. Yeah. That's fair insight. It's like anything else, you know, if the, the industry gets a bad name, it deters people away and, and you still need yeah. the best and brightest in the fossil fuel world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the technologies that, that we have are just insane. I mean, that's, that's like a whole nother podcast. Uh, yeah, but we'll do um, that. Yeah, it, it, I tell you, it, I just I go back to my original comment. I think just the demand and just the, the technology gap is going to keep, you know, the fossil fuel world alive for the next couple of decades. Um, you know, as far as commodity price, I think what I'll say, like my comment um, about the stability of the industry is one thing, but you know, the industry has always been relatively stable and we get these huge commodity price fluctuations because of geopolitical events and world happenings, you know. So there are going to be ups and downs. But I think, you know, what I worry about as a as a professional is I'd rather the cycles be more like, you know, between, you know, 50 and 80 dollars rather than 20 and 100 dollars, because that type of extreme volatility is what really jerks the market around. And also, you know, it's a company killer, um, you know, and the industry always has to reset 
on the on the rebound. So, um, but but I'm bullish. I'm bullish. Yeah, well, no, that's all good. said and done. That's good to hear, man. You know, I'm I'm glad. Uh, I feel like we covered a lot here. You know, we covered we covered quite a bit about how you guys are sort of you know in the, in in doing the same business and really managing on the price. Uh, we covered a lot about the you know the independent um, producers versus the majors. Um, we talked a lot about ESG and the environmental side of it. Um, yeah, we really covered a great deal of what I wanted to. So uh, I just want to say thanks for coming on. I loved uh, I loved hearing your perspective. It's so great to talk to somebody that knows more than a trader that all we care that all we care about is price and the curve and the crack spread and things like that, and to start to understand really what's going on under the hood of the industry. So I can't thank you enough for coming on with us today, Dave. I can't thank you enough for having me, man. I love you. Yeah, I love you too. I'm happy to do this. Yeah, we're going to do it again. I want to do, we'll do that podcast just on the technical side of the industry one day, man. If you think that's another podcast, then we'll tease that out and have a conversation of its own. Yeah, see what see what the feedback is on this. You know, you might have some people saying like, "God, don't get him again." Um, but it, but if the interest is there, man, I'm happy to help in any way I can. Oh, that's great, man. Well, we'll definitely have you on uh, again for an update in the future, whether it's on the technical side or just back again on what's new in ENP. That was really really educational for me, and I hope our listeners enjoyed it. Dave Williams, high level industry professional in exploration and production from Houston, Texas. Thank you, my man. Uh, You are very welcome. Thank you. This episode of The Oil Ground Up with Tony Greer should not be perceived as investment advice. Tony, his guests here on The Oil Ground Up and the host company Clear Commodity Network are not responsible for any losses arising from any investment decisions based on the information presented. Please do your own research and speak with a licensed financial representative before making any investment decisions.